in 315, we had the church in what role? And now, by contrast, in chapter 4, we're starting out talking about the false teachers and their untruths, their lies, that the church, um, you know, speaks against and, and uh, refutes. So, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. But the Spirit explicitly says, and in latter times, later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience, as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Alright, so what's Timothy facing? Yes, uh, and the hypocrisy has manifested itself in what what way? Falling away from the faith. Yeah, people who are who are teaching things that are wrong and that lead people away from God, um, and that's not unexpected because the Spirit has already explicitly said this will happen, so it's not a surprise that people do fall away and they pay attention to false teachings. Now, it's interesting that a couple of contrasts right off the bat. The Spirit explicitly tells us about the deceitful spirits. You know, so you've got the Spirit versus these false spirits. You also have um, the, uh, the, the truth uh, back in 315 versus the doctrines of demons. You know, error is multiform. You know, you can have many errors, you only have one truth. You can have many deceitful spirits, you only have one capital S spirit. You know, God, the, the truth, the right, is one thing. The error is many different things. So what we see is truth is exclusive, truth is narrow. You know, there are many wrong answers to the question of, you know, what's two plus two? And there's only one right one. And so, there are these, these doctrines of demons that people are paying attention to. Um, and what would lead somebody to, to um, give, give attention to these false teachings? they're saying apparently so they're lying and so it could be any type of claim ah yes it's deceitful it's uh, seductive it, it involves lies it involves things that may appear to be right but they're not what within a person makes him susceptible to this kind of thing both in teaching and in learning. Doesn't know the truth. I, not knowing the truth is one thing. Obviously, if you don't know it, then you're going to be easily misled. What does he deal with in verse 2? A seared conscience. Yes. When we don't do well, our conscience bothers us. When we repeatedly don't do well, our conscience gets more deadened, gets more hardened. It's like branding cattle, or even burning yourself severely. You ever, if you have a burned place, you don't have feelings there. It burns the nerve endings. You know, cattle, if you brand them, it would be very painful at the time, but then that place wouldn't have any feeling. And so people get to the point where they don't have spiritual feeling and sensitivity because they violated their conscience so much. I really think that... When we don't do well spiritually, that is probably the um, biggest factor in accepting false teachings. The biggest factor often is not the understanding of Scripture. 
Because if it is, then just teach, and you solve that. But but what? But but not all people, even when they're taught, come to a proper understanding of the truth. There are people who know the Bible inside and out. You know the Pharisees and people like that. But they never saw the truth. They were in in erroneous conclusions. Why? Because of their heart, because of their life, because of their sins. I've come to the point where when I'm talking with people who aren't doing well spiritually, and particularly who are who are going off the track in terms of doctrine and teaching, to, to talk more about their life and their behavior and their conduct than I used to. Because I don't think that's usually just an intellectual thing, that I've got to just help them intellectually understand the Bible better. Often, they've got to start doing better spiritually and they'll be in a more receptive mindset for what the scriptures teach. So I think, you know, their conscience being seared is a big part of those who teach false doctrines and those who listen to them. Comments and thoughts on those first couple of verses. Yeah, both uh, the teacher and the student in, in this. I guess... You know, having to deal with both. Some are going to fall away, and some are going to be leading them away. That's exactly right. And you're going to be dealing with each of those, he's telling you. Yes. Because there's a change in verse 3, the teachers, pretty much. Yes. <laughs> but in verse 1, it's the ones that are paying attention. Yes. To the, the, the doctrines. And yes. Yeah, and, you know, the the line between those two is rather narrow. Often those who do pay attention to those things begin to promote them. Yeah, and I guess when I was saying that, I was kind of thinking sort, sort of the same group. may not be a big distinction as far as how he deals with that. You, you've got those that are believing these things, and now they are the ones right. leading others also. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So when you say those not doing well spiritually, you mean caught up in some specific sin, maybe? Sometimes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and just, um, you know, I, I, guilt, you know, affects how uh-huh, we think. Uh-huh. Um, and, and sin tends to warp our thinking. It tends to sear us and harden us and make us less receptive and sensitive to God's Word. Uh, I was talking with somebody recently uh, who was talking about some, um, I don't know, questions uh, that they have about things they have believed and been taught in the past. Well, I don't think questions are necessarily a bad thing. Uh, this was somebody who's younger who's kind of questioning you know, things they've been taught as they're growing up. Well, I think that's part of the process. We have to do that. But this person was pretty much inclined to to discard some, some beliefs that I think are biblical beliefs. And, well, I, I made a couple of points with the person. You know, that number one, if we're going to know the truth about those things, we're going to have to read the Bible a lot. And the person was more or less saying they were paying a lot of attention to various people and what they thought and what they did and all that. I said, well, I think more importantly, obviously, is to read the scriptures to know. The second point I made is, your life really needs to be right if you're going to see these things. If you're not doing well spiritually, you're probably not going to come to an accurate understanding. And in talking some more with the person, I think the problem's a whole lot more than that. I don't think it's so much uh, intellectual things as a moral thing. I, I go back to John 3, 19 to 21, that those whose deeds are evil hate the light. They don't come to the light. It's not so much that they can't tell what the light is. It's that they don't want to be close to the light. When your deeds are evil, you prefer the shadows. <laughs> now, the, the false teachings in this case might surprise you. <laughs> you know, I mean, obviously, uh, false teachings can vary from time to time. And... Uh, what, what are the false teachings here? Doing without, which doesn't sound very appealing. Well, 
But yeah, why would anybody want that? Um, but I think if we'll think about that as we go through this, we might be able to come up with some reasons why we'd want that. What kind of things were they uh, forbidding? Marriage. Marriage and foods. Now, I suspect this is from kind of a concept that anything physical contaminates. So sex and hunger are, you know, unclean things. And, you know, eliminating certain foods, eliminating marriage and things like that is a way to be purer. You're, you're avoiding, you know, bodily things more. Um, and, and, well, I... Why would that be appealing? I mean, why would anybody, you know, accept a doctrine that would limit what you could eat or whether or not you could marry? It has a show. It has a show of spirituality or um, seriousness if, if, if that's what you ascribe to and you make it known. Definitely. Yeah, it, uh, that, that would definitely have that. It may have also come with a promise of more results. <laughs> if, you know, hypocrisy of liars, so who knows what what the promises were of that. Yes. But there was probably something that in their, something that made that appealing in their time or their previous worship or the idol worship or something. Maybe so. You know, it's been kind of an issue over over the years. I mean, can you think of some applications of this in various generations? Generations? Well, the Catholic Church still prohibits marriage from the, for a lot of their whatever levels. Yeah, priests and nuns and things like that. Yeah. And uh, generally has taken positions against certain foods, at least during Lent or Fridays or whatever. Mm -hmm. So you've had that. Um, even going back earlier in the Catholic Church, what did you have? I'm thinking about like, you know, it's about some of those monks in the Middle Ages that would, you know, sit around looking at the walls and eating bread and drinking water and trying to purify themselves and, you know, be unstained from the world and, you know, whatever. I mean, there's a word for this. You know what the word is? Asceticism? <laughs> You know the word asceticism? You know, it means kind of trying to deprive yourself of lawful pleasures in an effort to become more spiritual. And, uh, you know, I think that has its appeal because wouldn't that be easy? If all we had to do was just not eat certain things and not get married and we'd be pure and we wouldn't be contaminated with the world, you know, and, and the worse we get, the more we want something like that. The more filthy you feel, the more you ready you are to, you know, latch on to that. Of course, I mean, I don't know. It's going to help you uh, be more pure just not to get married. Doesn't seem to have done a great deal of uh, to benefit some certain Catholic priests, does it? <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, you can stop them from marrying, but but the battle with purity is in your heart and your mind. I mean, it's not just you know. I mean, you can. I don't know, you not eat some kind of food, but does that necessarily make you pure and righteous and holy? I mean, it doesn't. I mean, it's Colossians 2. Colossians 2 deals with that a lot and says, you know, all the treasures of, of knowledge and wisdom are hidden in Christ. And these artificial rules humans make that have, that have an appearance of self-made religion, like do not taste, do not touch, do not handle, are things that are of no value against fleshly indulgence. You know, just adding a few more restrictions where well, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to do that doesn't really help. If it's not a restriction God put on. If it's just a, a demonically inspired restriction and you may very well feel like, well, I didn't get married and I didn't eat fish on Friday, I'm okay. <laughs> and sort of then indulge yourself in the real sinful activities. I think often people who don't do well in the Lord become very rigid about something that's not even biblical. You know, trying to create artificially some kind of connection with the Lord. We do the same thing. I mean, we can do the same thing now. If we attend, 
we take the Lord's Supper, you know, we sing, and, and we do the same thing. Only here they're making up a few added rules, but if we're relying on those steps instead of the heart, it's no different. <clears throat> yes, absolutely. Yeah, we, we can, and, and we can do even even steps that may not be valuable at all, just, you know, uh, just as a means of, of feeling better about ourselves. You know, I don't do this, I don't do that. Of course, here, this is a full-blown blown doctrine that they're, you know, preaching to others. This is this how to be spiritual. Um, and it really wasn't from the Spirit at all. Uh, so, just because something's more restrictive doesn't necessarily mean it's better. I mean, we often think that's true, but that's not necessarily true at all. I mean, Jesus, in some ways, was much less restrictive than what the Pharisees were. Now, he was—he always obeyed every law of God, but just because we add a whole bunch of extra laws and rules, that hasn't helped us, you know, spiritually. Thoughts and comments? It's kind of like that checklist that I could just check off. I did this, I did this, I'm good. Yeah. And it, it makes it, uh, it kind of pacifies your conscience. Uh, but doesn't necessarily make you closer to God at all. It's interesting, there are religions that, when you call Christian, that follow the Bible that still do this, like the Catholic. And there's, save me now, there's some others. <laughs> but then there are other religions the Jewish that don't follow the New Testament that still that do the same thing. Now I could understand that more having not right. seen this, but it, it just seems odd that those that still do it when it seems to be so plain. Well, yeah, and it's amazing. Uh, in Brazil, there's several amazing things. I, I read the whole creed of one small Brazilian Pentecostal church one time. I think I still got it somewhere. I ought to resurrect it and type it out or something. There's several pages, but it was ludicrous went into exacting detail, mostly on women. You know, when they could ride a horse and when they couldn't, and what circumstances, and all kinds of clothing style, and this, that, and the other, and so forth, and so on, whatever. And just, like, wow. But, but what I remember better, one of the native Brazilian churches that is pretty strong, Deus on board, God is love, it's a Pentecostal church, and there's lots of them around. They had... They have a, a deal where to become a member, you get, you, at least this was true when I lived there 10 years ago, or 12, whatever. Um, they had a little deal like, you had one of these deals where they punch it so many times and then you get a, like a free something or other. Well, this was a deal where they like, I don't think punched it or put a star on it or check mark or something. We had like a, a card-like thing. We had like 40 places. You had to have attended 40 times before you could become a member. So they'd check it each time you attend. But on the back of this little gizmo, uh, this little card, they had a summary of their creed. Now, you think about, you know, if you were, if you wanted to summarize the most important points, you know, in your religion, in four summary statements, you know, what would you do? Well, here's what they did. You must not watch TV. Women must not cut their hair. Women must not uh, wear pants, and you read this creed daily. Those are the four. <laughs> you know, it's like, wow. You know, it just just blew my mind. I mean, wow. wow. <laughs> that somebody with a straight face would want that behind their their church. But you know. I mean, I've seen brethren not be quite that bad, but maybe pretty close. You know, as we get to fighting mock battles over things that the Bible doesn't even touch. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, in my memory, you know, I can remember, you know, um, discussions over, you know, how it would be dealt with when women would come to church and something other than a skirt. You know, you know, perfectly modest, but not the same style. And you know, can we tolerate this? And you know, that sort of stuff. And it's like, wow, you know, isn't that amazing? That that we and, and the thing is, I can remember 
I mean, you're too young to remember this probably, but I can remember when uh, a certain visitor was asked not to, to wear pants anymore. Because it was offensive to some of the people, what was said. Uh, but I can remember a lot of effort and time and whatever being put into how that was going to be dealt with and all that sort of stuff. And, and no effort being made, as far as I could see, to put much time into, you know, like, you know, the Lord and, you know, things that he was concerned about. But, but that's, wow, I mean, if we're not careful, we'll do that. So, we've got to really be nourished on the Lord and his word and just keep defining everything on the basis of what he says and not on the basis of our beliefs and traditions. What does he say about food? In four and five. What's that saying? God created it to be received in Thanksgiving. Yeah, so eat it. You know, I mean, basically, this is another passage saying there are no prohibited foods. Can you think of other passages that say that? Acts 10? Exactly, the sheet. Rise, Peter, Peter, kill and eat what God has cleansed, let no man consider unclean. Acts 10. Or Mark 7, 19, where Jesus, parenthetically, he declared all foods clean. Those are three great passages to say we're not under, under food laws. I can only think of two kinds of exceptions to that. Can you think of a couple of sort of exceptions to that? Blood. Yeah, we're not allowed to eat blood. It's a whole different issue. But we're not allowed to eat blood or things made with blood. Not that that's a big issue uh, for most of us. <laughs> but there are places in the world, including Brazil, where eating blood is more common than here. It's not super common in Brazil, but more so than here. Uh, not blood, blood, but, you know, like blood in various things. Uh, I've never been offered it. And there are a number of brethren in Brazil, the institutional brethren particularly, when they went down there, uh, basically thought it was okay to eat things, uh, eat blood. So that was, that's been an issue. Um, and then I would suggest um, things that intoxicate as something that should not be, you know, uh, partaken of. You know, that's a special class. Maybe we could think, say, this is really the, I mean, I don't know if this really fits quite the same category, but things sacrificed to idols. You can't eat in connection with worship of an idol. Uh, but it's really, they are not the food. It's the context of the idol festival. And, and I think we would see that would be true. I mean, you wouldn't, um, you know, share a meal with someone who's been withdrawn from. Or you wouldn't, you know, go to a place where sinful activities were being promoted, perhaps, and, and that would draw you into that and eat. But that's not really so much from the food itself. It's more. So, so those are some kinds of exceptions. But there are no dietary restrictions, you know. God doesn't have unclean foods for us. Because everything's sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Which is kind of interesting. I mean, I, I doubt that we could biblically prove that you couldn't ingest food without praying for it first. I mean, you know, praying over our food doesn't somehow... Um, you know, change it, but I think the biblical emphasis would be on praying when we eat. There's certainly passages where that's done. I mean, you think about Romans 14.6, he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. Um, in Acts 27, when they were on the ship, you know, that was in the storm, and Paul encouraged them to, finally, after 14 days, to eat. In verse uh, 35, uh, having said this, he took the bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. And some other passages like that. So, uh, there are, there's good biblical support for the idea of praying in connection with our eating. Uh, like I say, I mean, I don't think, I, I, I don't think we ought to make some kind of a rule out of that and say, you know, you're somehow contaminated if you took a morsel you didn't specifically get thanks for. But but the practice of praying in connection with meals is, I believe, a, a very biblical practice. 
Comments and questions? Just the, uh, is there any <clears throat> thing to go along with the Spirit explicitly says, is that directly to Paul or, I mean, there's other times when the Spirit told him, you know, he indicated that the Spirit said to do this or not to do that or? I don't know what he's got in mind. I don't know if it was some special revelation to him, it was, if it was something the Spirit was giving a lot of prophets, if it's reference to some passage. Right, I couldn't think of anything else that it referred to, like it was already written somewhere, and then he would say, well, the Spirit says this, and you could go read it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, and particularly in connection with this being a New Testament book, you wouldn't think he'd be saying something had been written in the New Testament, so. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think of passages where you have sort of similar things like uh, Acts 20.23, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Right. So that was more of a personal communication or communication through some prophet or something. <coughs> Other thoughts and comments through five? I forgot to write down that verse you used. You said something about... Um, he who is not from the light will go to darkness or something. John 3, John verse 3. 19 to 21. All right, well, there's the, the errors of the false teachers. Now, the next section perhaps focuses on Timothy's role in this and what his responsibilities are. How about 6 to 11? to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables that only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present <coughs> life, and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance. For it is... For this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. Alright, so as Timothy points these things out to the brethren, he's a good servant of Christ. That's part of his responsibility, is, uh, you know, presenting the truth to the brethren. And he's supposed to constantly be nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine he's been following. I like that concept. Just the whole idea of the word is something that nourishes us. We think about it being milk and meat and you know, our spiritual food. But we have to nourish ourselves and our own souls on the truth we're teaching others. You know, he's supposed to be pointing these out to the brethren, but he's personally supposed to be nourished by what he's teaching. And sometimes we may think mostly about how to use the Bible to tell them. But we first need to use the Bible to nourish and strengthen ourselves. Um, and I think it's a proper application to think about what I use as an illustration often, but, um, you know, we eat most every day. Why wouldn't we want spiritual nourishment most every day? You know, we get hungry when we go very long without eating. Why wouldn't we feel a hunger for God's nourishment if we were to go any length of time at all without, without eating? I think we need to constantly be receiving that. And you know, I can eat real good today, but that doesn't last me for six months. You know, I mean, if I, if I eat a banquet today and then go, you know, three or four months without eating, I won't go three or four months without eating. Because my body won't go that long. You know, nobody's will. We know about. And uh, so it's got to be a constantly, uh, you know, re-fortifying thing. I mean, we just have to constantly be nourishing ourselves with this. Comments and thoughts on verse 6? <clears throat> yeah, Um, When it says in verse 8, for bodily exercise, probably a little, does it mean like, uh, 
things we do for our bodies, or does it mean like the acts that these people were doing, like not marrying? What does it mean by that? No, I think it's more the Bible. Look, look at it for a second. In seven, he says, "But have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women." So you know, ignore these false teachings. In fact, some of them ought to just be ignored. <laughs> They're not worth even discussing. But you don't get strong by eating garbage. You know, you got to eat spiritually nourishing things, not these empty fables uh, that are. And that's, I think, where he'd be talking about the the false doctrines and the ascetic ideas and so forth. Um, and instead, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Um, there are two things that we often say are necessary for good health. Eating and exercise. got to eat right and exercise well. Well, this is the eating in verse 6. And the exercise is the disciplining ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Making deliberate choices to to do what we ought to do. Um, and he says, for bodily discipline is only of a little profit. I mean, you know, when it's all said and done, the, the kind of, you know, physical discipline and physical exercise we have, that doesn't make a whole lot of difference. But godliness is profitable for all things. So I think he's probably just making a contrast with the physical exercise. And, and, and that doesn't help us a whole lot. We get it, and we know it's important, but that's not the big thing. The spiritual exercise, the spiritual discipline of ourselves is the thing that really makes a difference. See you, J.D. I hope you find your grandpa okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, you know, what you were saying about exercise, it really makes sense. I mean... Why do we exercise? We exercise to keep fit, to, to be in shape. And, I mean, the same way with our spiritual lives. If we if we study and if we do the things we're supposed to do, we will be in shape. We'll be able to take on the world as, you know, a lot of people, you know, during, especially in the New Year, I'm going to exercise more, you know, I'm going to do this more. And that's like the, you know, the biggest New Year's resolution there is. You know, I'm, I'm going to buy a weight, weight machine and then they'll throw it away two weeks later or whatever. But, you know, why not make a New Year's resolution to, or whatever, just to study more, as much as we exercise? Sure. Well, I mean, those two things, the nourishment in God's Word, and then the discipline to do it, wow, that's huge. You get that kind of, of food and that kind of <clears throat> exercise, that has great promise, not only for the present life, but also the life to come. I mean, this is so helpful to us because it'll it'll really strengthen us. But I mean, isn't it interesting how you can boil down spiritual health into some really basic things? If you did those two things, you made yourself really feed on God's word, and then you disciplined yourself for the purpose of godliness. In other words, you made yourself do what you were reading. I, I, I'm, I'm Shane. Uh, what Shane said, uh, we just got a treadmill. Uh, and, you know, I have, I have never uh, enjoyed running. Uh, it's about the only physical thing I can do, you know, halfway well, and I don't do it very well because I don't really even walk right, but but I can, you know, in school I could be in the top half of my class and running, and uh, so that was kind of cool I got pretty good lung capacity but but so I've been I've been walk running on the treadmill 30 minutes a day uh, every day since we got it except for the day I was here and, uh, you know that's not fun I don't, I don't look forward to it now it may get to where I get so accustomed to it that it becomes just a part of my rhythm and I actually would look forward to it. I know Kyle just loved running when he did it and he enjoyed it, but I don't enjoy it. And, you know, I'm the kind of person who I'm a guy. So my goal is, you know, to better my distance every day. So far I've run 30 minutes or walked, whatever. And most days I've bettered my distance. I won't be able to do that forever, obviously. But right now I can. And so that's kind of my goal. But so when I get done... You know, I'm just dripping and just out of breath and all that, which is, of course, when you've really done something. But I don't do that because it's fun. It's not fun. I'd much rather not. 
I do it because I know I need to exercise, and I think it will make me feel better in the long run. And it's from that standpoint, I need to discipline myself to do it. And I think I will be one who will stick with that because I've been pretty motivated that I need to exercise, and that's an easy way to get it. But, but I only stick with it by just making myself do it. At least until maybe someday it gets to where I enjoy it. It'll have to be every morning. It's like I gotta do this. You know, I bought this thing, and this is what it's for, and this is why I'm doing it, and I'm gonna have to do it. And so I'm gonna do it, and that's the way it is. And when I get that way with my spiritual life, this is just the way it is. That's what I'm gonna do. I know I don't want to. I know I don't feel like it. But this is the way I gotta live. I gotta make myself do this, not do that, whatever. That's what it's all about. Um, sometimes spiritual discipline is frowned upon. And let me tell you why and and deal with this a little bit. I may have dealt with this before in this group, but it's worth talking about again because it comes up all the time. I hear people saying, well, but if you just have to make yourself do it, then it's really not worth anything because you're supposed to do it out of love, not because you, you feel like you have to. So I'm just kind of waiting for the feeling to come where I really want to, and that's the only way that it's really going to be legitimate. I think that's the devil's bill of goods that he's trying to sell us. And I would look at Jesus praying in the garden, let this cup pass from me. Did Jesus just feel this overwhelming urge to die on the cross? I take it from the prayer and the earnestness of the prayer. He didn't want to do this at all. But what did he do? Nevertheless, your will be done. He disciplined himself by submitting to the will of the Father to do what he didn't want to do. Did that make it less good? Why, of course not. The fact that he was willing to do what the Father said, even though he didn't want to, showed even more obedience, more submission, more love. You know, I don't think that it's any proof that Sandra loves me when I order her to go buy a new dress and she doesn't. That doesn't show anything about her loving me. But now if I tell her to do something and ask her to do something that she doesn't want to do at all, but she does it because she loves me, that's the proof of her love. So we bought this idea that if I don't feel in the mood, it's really probably not going to do me any good, and that's my excuse for not disciplining myself for godliness. I think it's even a greater proof of love. When I don't want to, I do it because God said to, and I love him, and I want to please him. So don't ever downplay the importance of making yourself do the right things. Yeah, it'd be wonderful if we really wanted to, wouldn't that be nice? But there's some things we're not going to really want to do. Thoughts? Confused the love of God and doing his commandment with the love of doing Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, that's a good way to express that, too. I like that. I said that right. We're yeah, just, you did. We that, love doing the commandment. We love God and therefore do His commandment. Exactly, exactly. I mean, man, yeah, I mean, how could somebody like Jesus have loved the pain and agony of the cross? I mean, that would be really weird. I mean, kind of, I don't know, self... Yeah, something. I mean, you know, I mean... Only people who are messed up like, you know, physical pain. Nobody likes that. And, of course, it was much more than that that Jesus endured. And uh, so, so we, would, we would perhaps not even find as much value in what he did. If, if we saw him just gleefully and joyfully, you know, grinning at every, you know, blow of the hammer on the nails or whatever. You know, it means more. It shows more love that we know he hurt. And we know it was hard, and it was agonizing. It shows more love. And, and certainly does for us. I mean, some things have been easy for me in my Christian life. They don't prove my love for God. I mean, I wouldn't drink, even if it wasn't wrong. Because I absolutely don't want to. It smells horrible. And I see what it does to people. I'm not going to do that. I don't care. I mean, if God had never prohibited, I wouldn't do it. Uh, but now there are other things. Wow. I want to. It's harder for me. 
you know, I struggle with them more. Sometimes I don't do that well. And those are the things where my love is being proven. Mark. It's got like a uh, child or his like parent or whatever. Normally when, like, earlier on in life, it's more like maybe out of fear of them or something. But once you get older or something, it's more out of you do it for love when you don't want to. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. And, and really, I mean, when you do the right thing, even when you're not going to get caught, that's, that shows that you're doing it out of love and not out of fear. When we do the right thing, even when there's not another Christian looking over our shoulder, that, that tells you something. That, that's when you're doing it because you love God and not because, you know, you're just trying to impress people. That makes me want to rejoice in trials more, like what I've talked about, because it gives you an opportunity to prove your love for God more. Exactly. I think there's a lot of truth in that. And uh, I, I think there is a joy in that. There's a joy in even proving to ourselves, I love God enough to do this or that. Um, sometimes it may be helpful to to push ourselves to make sacrifices in a lot of areas it's it's there's more joy in in one sense in giving something that you really want than giving something that didn't matter you know i i remember a um, 10 year old i think at the time who really great kid Really great kid, and uh, in a particular situation, he uh, he told me that he had some money saved up in the bank, and he would like to give a part of that money to somebody he thought needed it, and asked me why I thought about that. And uh, I talked to his dad after that about what what he'd said, and he said, "Yeah," and he said, "You know, a ten-year-old probably doesn't really value money in the bank. That wasn't probably the biggest sacrifice, but said he'll take something that he wants to eat." or some toy he's got, or whatever. And if he sees somebody who he thinks needs it, he'll give that away. That means more for a 10-year-old. Giving something that really matters to me, that's more. Um, think about it in the use of your time. I think I'm right in this. You know, young people especially, uh, some even younger than you, have a lot of time on their hands. And, uh, you know, sometimes they get bored. And they might as well read the Bible, because they haven't got anything better to do. <laughs> I don't think that is as worthwhile as not doing something they really wanted to do, to read the Bible. It, making a sacrifice. Doing it when it's hard. I think that really is more exhilarating, much more difficult. We have to make ourselves do it, but you know how I feel after I get off the treadmill every day. I feel like I don't have to do this for another 23 and a half hours. <laughs> but it feels good. I mean, you know, I did it. And actually, uh, you know, 30 minutes after I'm over, you know, my whole body feels a little lighter. You know, and you just have a little more pep and whatever. So, Comments and thoughts further through verse 8. I find sometimes that for myself, I think it's kind of discouraging, though, that sometimes I don't have the want to study. I don't, I don't know, it's, it almost to me seems like I should have the love for Christ and, and God to want to study his word. And sometimes I don't have that, it's discouraging to me. But I think, like you said, you know, we prove more. And, and, it, and sometimes even I find myself just, saying, well, if I don't want to, then, you know, is it going to do me any good? But yet, the times that I do do it, it was almost the best thing that I could have done. And, and, I, and like you said, you feel so much better for it, but you also feel like, you know, you get more of a want to do it. The more you make yourself do it, the more you get a want to do it. In the same way as, the same, almost the same way, almost an example, is the more we sin, the more calloused our hearts get. But yet, the more we study when we don't want to, the more we love His Word, the more we want to do it. I don't know if any of you have ever uh, gone without food long enough to know this, but if you, if you don't eat for a while, 
you kind of lose your appetite. I mean, you know, if you don't eat for six or eight or ten hours, man, you just get hungrier and hungrier and you can't think about anything but food. But after a few days, you know, I haven't experienced a few days, but even after, you know, a couple of days, you know, you don't really want it as much. It kind of, kind of, you kind of lose that. And I, I mean, you kind of get out of the habit, you know, and, and whatever, and it doesn't mean as much to you. I think, you know, sometimes we may have to make ourselves do some things before we develop the craving. Well, you may have to make yourself study for a long time before you get to where, man, you just really have an appetite for it. You may have to make yourself pray. You know, that's something that I always struggled with so much. And I've done so much better in these last few years as I've made myself do it. And then it's like, wow, I like this. This is this is really helpful. And then, like, you feel really weird on a day where you don't do it. You feel kind of lost. And, you know, and it's like, wow, I can't believe I missed this. Because it's something I had to make myself do. And I think there's a lot of things like that. If we just make ourselves do the right thing, yes, we will develop a taste for it. But we've got to we've got to start with making ourselves do it. I, I know a couple of people who uh, who came to the singing Friday night who didn't really want to, but they made themselves do it, uh, and they were really thankful they did. You know, I mean, different people have different things that are hard for them. Maybe you might think, well, how could anybody not want to do that? Well. There are different things we don't want to do for different reasons. And, you know, for me, studying, uh, by, by the time I was probably 15, I've never had to make myself do it since then. I've always enjoyed it. But for some people, that's really hard. For me, it was always much harder to talk to people. I could always study. And, I'd, you know, I'd have to make myself stop studying while I tried to teach somebody. You know, and things like that. Uh, so, I mean, you know, what's, what's easy for one person may be hard for another. But for all of us, whatever's difficult, we've got to discipline ourselves to do. And, you know, what you say kind of ring a bell in my head that, you know, we want to do it. But also when we see results, we want to do it even more. I, I know, like, when I lift weights, I hate doing it while I'm doing it. And especially if I don't see any results. If I don't see any results, I just don't want to do it anymore. When I see results in my own life, when it, with it working, especially with reading. And so you've, ne- you've never enjoyed lifting weights? No, I never have. <laughs> I've never really enjoyed lifting weights. Um, oh, lung capacity didn't come with flipping weights either, so I, really I'm lost why I keep doing it. But especially in my Christian life, especially in my Christian life, let's go to the, that part of it, it's the most important part, Gary. Yes, yes. Um, but uh, in my Christian life, the more I study and the more I grow, you know, the more I want to do it, as I see results. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. I think many things, once we develop the pattern, then we can't live without it. is similar with sacrifice. Um, we can't imagine living without X, Y, or Z, and so then giving that up opens up a whole new uh, store of opportunities to us that we couldn't see before because we just couldn't imagine living without, or we couldn't imagine, you know, disciplining ourselves in this regard, and so uh, the possibility wasn't even there. And when you find out, oh, I I am able to do this, I am able to do without this, then, like I say, other opportunities open up. Amen. Other thoughts? And so he says, you know, we've got this trustworthy uh, statement, (laughs) and that's a debatable thing as to what he means. Perhaps that godliness is profitable for all things. Um... That's my guess uh, as to what he means by the trustworthy statement. But there are many other options on that, and you can give some thought to that for yourself and see what you uh, what you think about that. Uh, but all of them are good statements, so it's not critical that we know that. In verse 10, for it's for this we labor and strive, because we've fixed our hope on the living God. You know, labor and strive is really strong terms. Um you know, putting forth every effort, every ounce of strength, every degree of energy. We really work hard, you know, because we've fixed our hope on God. You know, when you put your hope in God, then you're going you're gonna to give yourself to it. And it's intense, and it's energetic. Again, do you see that Paul is telling Timothy, this takes effort. This is not something you drift into. 
this is something you work hard at. You know, you have to break a spiritual sweat at least to serve the Lord faithfully. I mean, it's not something you do passively, lackadaisically, just kind of, well, I just kind of felt like it today. We're in the generation that does what they feel like. People have grown up every, every moment they weren't in school doing whatever they felt like right at that moment. And we got to break that habit when it comes to serving God. It takes effort. We have to really work. Um, and, and all of that, I think, is just really practical stuff for us who are so self-indulgent by culture. And so he says, prescribe and teach these things. Comments and questions on all of this through 11. I know a lot of places that, that word strive is the Greek word agonize. I think it is here. Yeah, yeah, I think it is here. Which you see the word agonize. Yes. We agonize over that. Yeah, it's a strong word. Yeah, yeah. Tony Sellers years ago gave a lesson one time when he was in for the holidays, and Boyd usually recruits his family members to give a lesson when they're in. And uh, he gave a lesson and pointed out different places where that word is used. And, mm-hmm. and it was very it was very interesting. Uh-huh. It's used several times, yeah. yeah. Good point. Other thoughts? Um, in verse 10, it talks about God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. That just sounds kind of weird to me. Yeah, who's got a different translation there? You really got something other than the NASB. I got New King James. What do you have? For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Okay, God especially. I mean, what he's saying is he's the Savior of all men. But, but, you know, the focus of that is on those who believe. He's potentially the Savior of everyone. But he actually, in fact, <coughs> saves those who believe. That's really the idea of that. Not that he, he saves the believers specially and <laughs> saves the other guys unspecially. But, but perhaps if we said, you know, he's the savior of all men, uh, specifically or in fact, those who believe. I think that's the idea. I think some of the translations probably bring that out. But, but yeah, the way we use that. Other comments and thoughts through 11. Well, let's go ahead and look at this last section, although we won't get all the way through it. Somebody want to read 12 to 16? Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct, in love, in faith, and purity, until I come to devoted, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhort, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which is, which was given to you by prophecy when, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, devote yourself to them, so that all may see your progress. Keep, it, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teachings. Persist on this, for you for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your heart, your hearers. Alright, let no one look down on your youthfulness. Is there some tendency for young people to be looked down on? Now, look down on in the sense of maybe not respected that much, not listened to that much. You know, they don't have experience foolish, impulsive, whatever. So I think, yeah, we, we, we would see there being some practical uh, things in that. So what's a, what's a young man supposed to do to keep people from looking down on their youthfulness? Be a good example. Yeah, live right. Now, you know, that's not always the way people, young people try to keep from being looked down on. You know, what are some wrong ways to try to keep people from looking down on you? Speech, conduct. Some wrong ways. Oh, yeah, okay, I got you. (laughs) Yes. Well, you make a statement by living a certain way or by dressing a certain way or whatever. So you you make a statement that you demand respect by 
Yes, and sometimes even verbally. You know, young people may almost insist on respect. You know, kind of boastful, assertive, you know, you're not going to ignore me, you know, and, and just kind of, kind of demanding. Well, does anybody ever get respect by demand? <laughs> I mean, sometimes parents will, will do that. Uh, I mean, or teachers or whatever. I mean, even people in authority. They don't get respect by, by, by telling people they got to respect them. <laughs> you know, you get respect by living respectably. You act in a respectable way, people respect you. You know, young people feel like, well, I, just, I wish people wouldn't, they'd, they'd have more respect for me and, you know, they wouldn't look down on me so much. Well, this is how to do it. So he's telling Timothy, by your life, by your conduct, see to it that no one has any reason to look down on your youthfulness. And, and I like the areas that he deals with here. The first two give sort of the spheres, the speech and the conduct. I mean, pretty much everything is either what you say or what you do. And then the last three are the qualities, the love, the faith, and the purity. Um, and I think those are pretty important qualities that young people are often deficient in. Think about it a little bit. I mean, there might be several ways of looking at that love, faith, and purity. But in contrast with love, young people seem to almost more than most have a struggle with being selfish. And, you know, not being considerate of others. You know, just kind of very self-focused. He says, be an example of love. And you're reaching out to others and you're caring about others. You see a young person who really cares about other people. That really impresses you. It really reaches out to others that's involved with others. You know, you see a young person who maybe goes and visits the elderly and the sick and things like that. Wow, it's like, wow, they really care. I think about being an example in faith. There's several ways of looking at that. But what about the idea of being faithful, being trustworthy? Being, being some, somebody that, that you can put your faith in. That's something young people struggle with a lot. <laughs> being irresponsible. Not, not trustworthy. You know, can't depend on what they say or don't do. And then, we would all understand the idea of purity. Um, because young people struggle to master their desires and their passions. But, but to be respectable, you be an example of purity. So in both what you say and what you do, the example of, of love, and trustworthiness, and and mastering your your passions and desires. Comments and questions about that. First, when there I was teaching in school, like you're supposed to go after like, what you want or something like that. You're supposed to try to achieve something, and sometimes you need to like watch what you're trying to achieve. That's a good point. Yes, you need to have the right goal. definitely more of an issue, like you say, in youthfulness. Some people never outgrow it. <laughs> Good point. And, and realize that Timothy was not a kid here. Right. I mean, because this is some, I don't know, 12 or 14 years, perhaps, after Paul started taking him with him on his journeys. So if you were thinking of Timothy as being a 14-year-old, he was a zero or two when he started going on Paul's journeys. This, we're not talking about that. You know, he's not a junior high school kid here. I mean, he may be 30 or close to it. Uh, and, you know, so... But yeah, you're right. I mean, some people who are 60, you know, still have the youthful qualities that they should. Part of that, too, the speech and the conduct, like you're saying, those need to display the love, the faith, and the purity. But I think part of, the, part of the problem is trying to imitate this, the love, the faith, and the purity. In other words, trying to demand the respect by the things that they say, but it, it, it's almost, it appears evident that it's not out of love, faith, and purity. You know, there's, so, so it's counterproductive, I guess, if that's, if that's the motivation. It's got to be more than a veneer, it's got to be real. Right. The other thing that tends to be an issue 
I think, is what you were talking about with the respect. You have to earn that. That takes time. Um, patience is, is often a problem with young, pe- young people, even in that area. Well, I was good the other day. Why don't you respect me? Yeah. You know? <laughs> Look, I've been good for 24 hours. Don't I deserve that at this point? That's Again, it's not something that you ever uh, demand or command. It comes over a period of time, and you have no control over when it comes. Well, what a blessing when a young people, person is exemplary in a consistent manner, lives in such a way that people do respect them. They can have a great deal of influence, can do a lot of positive good, as Timothy did. Because he did conduct himself in that way. Uh, so, you know, I think this, this is a tremendous goal for us to strive for. I think another thing in that area is the things that we try to do as young people for, I call it attention, maybe it's maybe they're trying to get respect or whatever, but the things as a young person that I did for the attention did exactly the opposite <laughs> and, and still do today. When young people do things thinking, well, I'll get people's attention with this, whatever it may be. It is. It is. It does exactly the opposite of what you really want. The respect from that. The respect will never come if you continue to do things to try to get respect. Right. That makes right. sense. Yes. Yes. The respect is the byproduct. It's not what we are directly seeking. Yes. Yeah. That's a good point. Absolutely. Well, meditate on those things. I probably need to stop here, but um, I won't be here next Monday, but Lord willing, I will the following two Mondays. 21st and the 28th, I should be here, I think. So that's the plan. Good to see you guys.